May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Boy, it's good to be home. You know, uh, I have invented a new saying, that a bad week in Kitsap County is a better than a good week in Pittsburgh. Uh, and for me, at least, that seems to be especially true because the sun is out this morning. Um, so it's good to, be, good to be back. For the church, Epiphany is a season of light. The birth of Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas, brings light into the world, of course, light that shines the way to God. And in the days that follow, we join in celebrating the coming of that light. We proclaim it far and wide, echoing the joy of the angels, joy to the world the Lord has come. Epiphany amplifies that message for the whole season. Announcing the manifestation of the love of God in the birth of Jesus and proclaiming to the farthest corners of God's creation that all people everywhere are invited to come and join the followers of Christ. As the days get longer and as winter moves ever so slowly towards spring, we celebrate this coming of the light and the announcement of God's intention to light up the whole world with his love. As the prophet Isaiah anticipated, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It's easy to think that that land of deep darkness that Isaiah is speaking about exists outside of us outside the community of God's faithful followers. That land of deep darkness must be someplace else, a territory where the powers of sin and death reign supreme and where God is absent. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that deep darkness is not just external. It lurks in us, in our hearts and in our minds, We are still fallen creatures in need of a redeemer. The darkness that needs illumination is something that we live with every day. It's a little bit like that old horror movie trope. The call is coming from inside the house. And if we hope that we can step out of the darkness and live in the light, the only way is to know and follow Jesus Christ. Now, that may seem sort of blindingly obvious, if you will, but many of us are willing to try almost anything else, any other solution to our problems. This morning, we hear from the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus' transfiguration, that moment when his physical countenance, his outside, shines with the pure brightness of the ever-living God of heaven. In that moment, light breaks through the gloom of life. And even if just for a moment, Jesus shines and is revealed in the fullness of his glory. Peter and James and John have been invited to join their teacher on the mountain to pray. They are the mortal witnesses to what happens there. 
while Moses and Elijah show up as well, eternal witnesses from Israel's history, representing the law and the prophets. This scene is one of several mountaintop moments that appear in Scripture. Mountains in the Bible as well as in our daily lives are places of majesty that evoke awe. And they're often the place where God acts to completely alter the course of events. Moses, of course, received the law from God on Mount Sinai, as we read this morning. Elijah had his duel with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and then later heard the still small voice of God on Mount Horeb. Jesus shared the Beatitudes from a mountain, just to name a handful of moments. Now, you may remember, of course, that this morning's preacher comes from a place where there are no mountains. In fact, let me take this educational moment. The highest point in the great state of Florida is called Britain Hill, and it's about 345 feet above sea level. So by contrast, Gold Mountain, which is the highest point in Kitsap County, stands at a staggering 1,761 feet. So the next time you wonder how tall Gold Mountain is, it's about five times the state of Florida. (laughs) So reading scripture in a place with no mountains and very few pronounced hills, I used to wonder if these peaks where God always seems to speak were really all they were cracked up to be. And now I find myself surrounded by mountains. I even get to the close of a, top of a few of them when the calendar and the weather conditions are most favorable. <laughs> Just a few weeks ago, I took a day off and got over to Hurricane Ridge in Olympic National Park. And that's a place where you can really see. You can get high up enough in the air to break through the clouds and remember what the sun looks like, even in February. And I have to tell you, the fact is that mountains are actually pretty incredible. The hype is real. When you get high up on a mountaintop, you can see clearly. The air is thinner. It seems to be a little crisper. The sun is brighter and the colors of creation all pop with a little bit more intensity. It's no accident that we refer to very good, transformative times in our lives as mountaintop experiences, or that so much of our rhetoric and music draws on that same imagery. John Muir is often quoted saying, the mountains are calling and I must go, which speaks to a spirit of almost mythical adventure that draws you to those peaks. When we hear John Denver's Rocky Mountain High or Ain't No Mountain High Enough, we instantly grasp the beauty and the majesty and the awe that those lyrics are meant to invoke. When Martin Luther King Jr. said in his final speech in Memphis that he had been to the mountaintop and he was no longer afraid of what might happen if he did not reach the promised land, he was giving voice to that feeling of exultant triumph of completion, of truly accomplishing something. On top of a mountain, the light breaks through and the darkness cannot hope to snuff it out. Which I think helps to explain why Peter thought Jesus might want to stay up there for a little while. Regular life is difficult. 
There are chores to do and bills to pay, and frankly, there are often other people to deal with. But up on the mountain, there is clean, fresh air and plenty of quiet time for contemplation and whatever else you might want to do. The only sounds are the birds and the gentle breezes. There are no nagging fears to face. There are no Roman soldiers or temple officials to worry about. Peter wants to stay on that mountain with Moses and Elijah and Jesus because this was a moment like nothing he had ever experienced before. Now, Peter is, of course, the disciple most likely to say whatever first comes to his mind, to act on impulse and not wisdom. But for him, as a first century Jewish person, if Moses and Elijah appear, it would seem to follow that this is the beginning of the end of history, that God is going to liberate Israel and roll everything up like a scroll. But Peter has made a couple of leaps in judgment. The first is that while he has respect for Jesus, he clearly has not grasped who Christ is in the grand scheme of things. Because while Jesus is master and rabbi, he is also more than that. He is Messiah, the son of God. And that means that while Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, standing in for the prophets, are important, they are not Jesus' peers. Moses and Elijah are not on the same level as the incarnate word of God made flesh. The law and the prophets are assumed and fulfilled in Christ. So the light on the face of Moses as he comes down the mountain and the chariot of fire that assumes Elijah into heaven are signs that point to Jesus Christ. Jesus, however, points to no other light, for he is himself the light the morning star, the brightest in all the firmament. And furthermore, Jesus will not stay all the way up there above the fray because his work is not finished. There is still much that has to be done down off the mountain. And if Jesus stays there, keeping his power and his glory and his light to himself, the darkness will not be dealt with as it should be. Peter, of course, is not even finished speaking before God cuts him off. A cloud envelops the whole party and the voice from the cloud thunders, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You might fall flat on your face too, prostrate before the majesty of the living God if you heard that kind of direct word. But this transfiguration in which Christ's glory is revealed to these closest disciples, is not actually a substantial change in Jesus' character. It is instead the outward and visible revelation of who Jesus has always been on the inside. God the Father glorifies the Son so that he shines with the light of divinity, which has always been his proper identity. Jesus is, in fact, clothed in the light that he is always wearing. And when he speaks to these cowering disciples, he tries to comfort them. Rise, have no fear. Those are the kind of words that angels are often using when they encounter human beings. And it's because light can be frightening if you're not ready for it. So when the disciples lifted up their eyes, 
Matthew tells us they saw no one but Jesus only. Seeing Jesus is the thing the disciples need the most. Their darkened vision has been now enlightened. And this is what you and I need as well. To see the glorified Lord in all his beautiful radiant glory and let his light banish the darkness. Paul wrote this to the Philippians, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus similarly told his disciples earlier in Matthew, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. That light of Christ, the light that stunned the disciples and called Paul forward in faithfulness, shines in Christ's earthly work, but is now visible in the transformed lives of his followers. To put another way, you and I are followers of Jesus, faithful disciples, only to the degree that we reflect his light in the world. That call of Christ, the call to follow him, is worth doing as Paul did and forgetting everything that lies behind That call is the fuel of the life of discipleship, the good news that's announced at Christmas and the light that shines in the world even now. For those of us who have lived too long in darkness, it is the very best news that Christ, who is our light, is inviting us to come and follow him. The light of Christ is powerful. As Exodus says, it is a devouring fire, but it purifies And it is deadly only with regard to the old life. When your life catches fire for Jesus, what burns away is the dross of sin, those imperfections that have to be removed. Over time, we are purified and made luminous like polished brass, bright with his light and life. We who are trying to follow Jesus faithfully carry a spark of that light within us. We all have a cross that we have to bear just as he did, but we are being strengthened to shoulder it as we follow our Lord faithfully. And that's not something that's just reserved for the spiritual elite. It is the normal condition of all those who call on Jesus. We need his strength to persevere. What lies ahead down the mountain for Christ and his disciples is not the appropriate public adoration or glorification that he actually deserves, but the hardwood of the cross. Coming down the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is now headed towards Jerusalem, toward his trial, torture, and death. A curtain will fall after this morning's worship as the church moves from the light of epiphany into the starker, darker season of Lent. We will spend much time in quiet prayer and reflection, contemplating the distance that our sins have placed between our souls and their maker, and the extremes that God was willing to go to in order to bridge that gap. But the light of Christ still shines in us, even as we mark our foreheads with ash. And in this coming season of repentance, the light breaks through 
as we put the needs of others before ourselves, as we share fellowship with neighbors and strangers, as we give sacrificially of our time, our talents, and our treasure, as we follow our Lord and Savior wherever he leads us to go, we can do this because the light has been gifted to us by Christ. And when we follow through on our commitments to him, when we behave in accordance with the faith that we so readily claim with our words, we shine with the same light that broke through the clouds on the mountain of transfiguration. Like Peter, James, and John, we become witnesses to the power of the king whose coming is truly in the name of God. And when the witnesses to Christ's love and light, shining with his reflected glory, move out into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. When the church rises up with one voice, then there is no power of hell or scheme of man that can hope to stop her. Down we go from the mountaintop with our Lord, out into the world, moving toward the cross and the grave, but without fear. Because we know that our Savior has gone before us. And we are shining as little lights. Shining in a world he loved and died to save. Amen.